everyone, and welcome to this latest edition of our Brexit and Beyond podcast. And I'm absolutely delighted this week to welcome from what is, I hear, a snowy Athens, Professor Lucas Sakalis uh, from the University of Athens, Eliamet think tank, formerly of the London School of Economics and Oxford University. At Oxford University, I believe, Lucas, you had some fantastically talented students. Absolutely. I can see one of them just right now. <laughs> What a great start. I want to go back, if I can, to uh, your book, In Defense of Europe, which was published, I think, a week before the 2016 uh, referendum. And I think it's fair to say you didn't anticipate how that referendum would go or what the campaign itself would look like. What have you learned about Britain from the experience of the referendum and its aftermath? Well, to be honest, I had been calling for a referendum in the UK for some time before it actually took place because I realized that Britain was on a very dangerous path in relation to the European Union. It almost looked like an accident waiting to happen. Uh, the big turning point was economic and monetary union because the adoption of the euro was a turning point because Britain at that time decided it was a big step too far for it to take and they couldn't stop the rest of Europe taking it. So it felt increasingly marginalized, isolated inside the European Union. So I felt that the proper debate was due and such a debate could be created by a referendum. I was wrong in the sense that I probably underestimated the risk of demagogues taking mm -hmm. over and the debate being hijacked by all sorts of other issues rather than having a proper discussion about the pros and cons of being a member of the European Union. Although I wonder whether, again, if I may use the phrase I used before, whether it was an accident waiting to happen. Britain was getting increasingly isolated inside the European Union, and you felt that. I mean, I remember taking part in meetings in Brussels, talk off the record, high level advisors, politicians, and so on. And in years before 2016, very often there was no British participant in them. Such a thing would have been totally unthinkable 10 years earlier. Yes, yet it was thinkable in 2013, 14, and 15. So there was a real problem. I mean, it's really interesting because a lot of a lot of people here explain everything that happens simply as a function of our domestic politics. We don't even mention the European Union, but what you seem to be saying is there were genuine issues above and beyond the problems of the Conservative Party in terms of our relationship with the European Union and how we interacted with it. Absolutely. I mean, Britain has had the most troubled relationship with the European Union compared to any other member. I mean, all European countries are different, but Britain was much more different than anybody else and also carried a much bigger weight than most. And that made a huge difference. Remember, at some point, the UK turned increasingly into a kind of what I call conscientious objector to European integration. It objected to the currency, it objected to Schengen, it objected to just about everything fundamental, with the exception of the single market. And at the time when many other European countries were ready, rightly or wrongly, to accelerate the process of integration, the risk of an accident was very big. 
And remember that Cameron felt isolated, but also the rumors, the stories I heard was that Cameron often went to European councils and the impression he gave to the rest of the people around the table was that he would rather be somewhere else. And this is not the sort of thing, sort of message that you want to get across to people with big egos as well, all right? You don't go to a European council and imply that you're bored, that you have more interesting and more important things to do in life. And then you create a sort of atmosphere and a year later, you start negotiating or renegotiating your membership of the European Union. And surprise, surprise, you find that the others are not really ready to negotiate anything with you because mm -hmm. they're fed up. So, of course, I think Cameron carries big responsibility for what happened, but it was the culmination of problems that were accumulating for years. I was very, very struck. I reread your Alcuin lecture in Cambridge, which I think you gave in 2013. 13, I think. And... You know, in that you talk about the fact that if we have a referendum, it will be the it will be an occasion for reason, rational debate about the place of Britain. And obviously that didn't really happen as you'd foreseen it. Do you think what, what do you think has happened to British politics? I mean, why 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 were, were people like you so off the mark when it came to the nature of political debate in the UK? Did things suddenly change or have we missed a trick and failed to understand that referendums just bring out that kind of visceral politics? Perhaps I was still a naive believer in rationality as a key element in politics. But British politics has changed dramatically in recent years. I mean, honestly, watching the UK from outside, as I do now, but being, I, I believe, a still good friend and an admirer of the country, I never expected British politics to sink so low as it did before the referendum and after. I mean, it was an unrecognizable country. What do you mean by sink so low? Demagogues had taken over. It was not, it was not a serious debate. I often worried, I was extremely critical of my compatriot Greek politicians about their lack of seriousness. But watching what was going on in the UK in recent years, it made Greek politics look extremely serious to me. It was something totally unrecognizable, and I mean it. One of the other things you argued in, in Defense of Europe was that increased flexibility in integration would be a game changer for the European Union. Looking back and indeed looking forward, do you think that was simply a function of a need to accommodate the UK so it no longer applies, or do you think that's still the case? Well, of course, you needed much more flexibility to accommodate the UK because the UK was different and big, as I said before, but we need flexibility from now on as well. I mean, there's a huge diversity in mm. the European Union of 27. The remarkable thing is not how different opinions are within the EU. What is indeed remarkable is that such diversity of opinions actually produces results. And so often they're common decisions and they're implemented. So people shouldn't be surprised about the diversity. They should be surprised that the damn thing actually functions occasionally, not always. This diversity will continue. So we will need flexibility and we will also need to rely on occasion on groups of willing and able who go ahead and others stay behind 
And if they so choose at a later stage, they may join or may not join. Look at what happened with the Euro. I mean, the Euro started with 11 countries. It now has 19. Membership increased during the worst existential crisis mm -hmm. of the Euro, and yet people joined. There are countries like Sweden or the Czech Republic or Hungary that prefer to stay outside, as long as this does not create a real problem of what now Boris Johnson knows to be level playing fields, mm -hmm. namely fair competition. I don't see why should anybody force or try to force the Swedes to join the Eurozone. Surely being a euro out is less tenable now without the UK. I mean, the UK was a powerful country that led the group of euro outs. The Swedes used to hide behind us in all those conversations, hoping that we'd make our views prevail about the dangers of discrimination. Isn't being out of the euro now far, far more uncomfortable with the UK out of the room? As far as the Swedes are concerned, I think it's a good example. I don't really think so. I mean, the Swedes trail, uh, follow the euro. The Danes much more closely than the Swedes. It doesn't create a real problem to anybody. Of course, groups of willing and able can perhaps be applied to the currency. They cannot easily be applied to taxation or to migration because the problem is free riders. So, you know, with taxation, if everybody agrees on a minimum rate of taxation and you play the free rider and try to attract foreign investment by offering sweetheart tax deals to multinationals, that this is not acceptable to the rest of the European Union. So, you know, enhanced cooperation, willing and able, you can apply to some areas, but not to all of them. Okay. Now, one of the key recommendations from that book was, I mean, and you were talking about the last economic crisis, not the current economic crisis, economically radical policies. In that light, do you think the European Recovery Fund fits the bill? Well, it is absolutely a game changer. Think about it. If somebody had told us two years ago that the EU27 would agree on a fiscal stimulus package of 750 billion euros, euros to be borrowed in financial markets and distributed unequally, so there is a clear redistributive bias in favor of the weaker and more vulnerable member countries of the European Union. And to spend more than half of that money to transform the European economy into the digital and green direction. If I had told you all that, you would have said, you know, Lucas, stop daydreaming. <laughs> this is not on. Yes, it is on. It is. I mean, it was a game changer. Will it be enough? I'm not sure. Because if the pandemic, you know, stays longer, if our lockdowns continue for much longer, then the economic effects, I mean, or rather 750 billion would not be enough to deal with the problem. I don't know if you saw the recent paper from the Delors Centre on the recovery fund, which I thought was interesting because they argued not only that this was a game changer in terms of asset creation for the Eurozone, but also in the way that it potentially gives teeth to what has been the fairly sort of a bit of a waste of time, the country-specific recommendations, because, of course, that whole process now is going to be tied to the giving out of real money. Do you see this as a, as a, as, as a game-changer in governance terms as well, that you actually get the kind of centralised governance of some aspects of uh, fiscal policy that the Eurozone has been lacking? It could be, but the proof of the pudding will be in the eating. I will have to wait and see what those national 
plans alike and how much teeth does the European Commission and the Council have in changing them when necessary. I hope it is the case, but you know, I have to wait for implementation. And this is, of course, the other big test of the game changer. Italy changed the government, basically in order to better manage, or hopefully better manage, the money from the recovery fund. Now, let's wait and see what the Italian recovery program looks, looks like. Now, I suppose with Draghi as prime minister, the chances of having a much, more, a much better program uh, have increased dramatically. I mean, one of the really fascinating things that you've written is that increasingly in Europe, the, the main divisions are not so much between countries, but within countries. And sort of oh. speaking of the sort of populist threat and polarization. And Italy's a nice case study. Do you, do you fear for the future of European integration if, the, if national politics continues to degrade in the way that it looks like it might in some member states? Of course. I mean, I always fear. I mean, European integration is an extremely risky process and it will continue being so. I mean, let me think, let us think of a bad scenario. The French have presidential elections in 2022, and suppose that Madame Le Pen, I think it's very unlikely, but suppose that Madame Le Pen is actually elected mm. as president of the French Republic. Can you imagine the European Union with Le Pen as French president? Mm. What would be the implication? God knows. And, you know, the traps are all over the place. And, of course, what happens to France and Germany counts much more because we are all equal, but some are much more equal than others. Notwithstanding that, do you think the EU and the member states could and should have done more about what's been happening in Poland and Hungary, this sort of supposed democratic backsliding? Yes, I do believe so. I hope that they will apply more seriously the rule of law provision now with the recovery fund. It's awkward. I mean, you have two countries, and especially Hungary, which looks less and less like a normal democracy as we understand it in the Western part of the world. Now, you might argue that some US states, especially under Trump, looked less and less like functioning democracies. But this is not good enough as an argument. True, I mean, Hungary presents a serious problem. To what extent can Brussels actually arrest illiberal tendencies in an individual member country? Orban has been very successful in handling the rest of Europe, but of course Orban's survival has always depended essentially on how, besides the benign neglect that's the word I would use, of his German counterparts. Because if German Christian democracy had decided to be tougher with Orban and his party, he would have had much less of a margin of maneuver. We're going to take a very, very short break now for what we'd like to call our commercials. And we'll be back with you in a few minutes. Hello. Sorry to interrupt this fantastic podcast. My name is Catherine Barnard, and I wanted to tell you about our wonderful newsletter that comes out each week, full of news and views. And then if you're really interested, follow us on Twitter too. Right. We, we were talking about uh, Viktor Orban before and the, and the Germans are sort of not acting as strongly as perhaps they might have, in the, particularly the Christian Democrats. Has Germany s stepped up to the plate when it comes to leadership in the last few years? There have been many accusations that they've been strangely absent, not least when it comes to foreign policy. 
There are different ways of looking at Germany's rule in the last 10 years. There is no doubt at all that Germany has emerged as a leading power inside the European Union. And German leadership has been essentially a function of its position inside the Eurozone. It's the monetary side that makes Germany so powerful inside the European Union. On the one hand, people can accuse Germany for imposing austerity policies on the rest of the Eurozone. I think it would be a fair accusation. I mean, now there's growing consensus among economists that European economies suffered because austerity was imposed too harshly and too early during the financial crisis. The Germans played a leading role in that respect. So you can put much of the blame on uh, German political leaders, Merkel and uh, Schäuble in particular. On the other hand, every time when it came to the crunch, Merkel saved the game. She did so with Brexit. She did so especially with the migration crisis in 2015. The bad news is that Europe could have done, rather the European economy has fared considerably worse than it should have in times of crisis. The good news is that we have proved that the collective instinct of survival of the Europeans is actually very strong. That every time you reach the edge of the precipice, people take decisions. And when we say people, it's mostly the Germans and the French who lead the pack, but they do take decisions. And look again what happened with the recovery fund. The other thing that it keeps on being confirmed is that the French have most of the ideas, the Germans resist and eventually find a compromise. But most of the ideas continue to come from France, especially under the Macron era. Macron is a totally untypical French president. Macron thinks European, he's in the avant-garde of European integration. And he comes up with bold proposals ranging from the Eurozone to defense, to European sovereignty, to parliament, to whatever. Now, Mm. this is new. Ideas always used to come for France, but now their ideas are leading towards closer European integration. Merkel is not a visionary. Merkel was a conciliator. Although with the migration crisis, she did take a very bold decision and she paid a heavy price at home because it was clear that, you know, Merkel opening her arms to one million immigrants to Germany in 2015 was not something that made her popular at home. I mean, I've always thought in Macron, Harold Macmillan famously said about de Gaulle when he says Europe, he means France. <laughs> and I've always thought that that fits quite well with Macron as well, is that, you know, it, you know, he has these European schemes, but it all seems to me to be about putting France front and centre, not least in terms of being the ideas factory. Is there any truth to that, do you think? Or do you think it is genuinely, I'm think- not saying he's the same as de Gaulle, but is it is it genuinely a step change away from the sort of traditional model of the French president? Would you ever imagine that the French president would come up with the idea of having a smaller number of European commissioners in Brussels mm-hmm. without necessarily having a French member in the European Commission? I mean, he dared say that. And mm-hmm. that is pretty extraordinary that if you want to have a cynical interpretation, you may say, well, he says that because he knows that everybody else will not agree to it. So it's, you know, it's a nice gesture without much cost. But his proposal for the recovery fund, I mean, 
France is not a net beneficiary from that fund. His idea of a Eurozone parliament with a Eurozone budget and a Eurozone finance minister, narrowly defined, is that in the short-term French interest? Not necessarily so. But Macron also realized that when the pandemic hit, that unless something like this was done, you might lose Italy on the way. So he thinks European. I think he's able to think European. Very few leaders are either able or can afford to think in European terms. In a Europe of 27, where there are very clear divisions between both East and West and North and South, do you think the Franco-German relationship, for all their relative size, continue can continue to lead in the way that... I remember you saying to us once in class hundreds of years ago, that you know the strength of the Franco-German relationship lies lay precisely in their differences. That is to say, if the French and Germans could agree, that windset would incorporate the other member states between them. But if the French and Germans, for instance, find themselves on the same side of the argument when it comes to East versus West, can they still play that role or actually does it need to be more inclusive? That's a very good point. I still believe that on most issues, the French and the Germans start from almost opposite ends of the spectrum. And in trying to find a compromise, they allow room for other countries to chip in with their own special interests. Mm -hmm. Now, this applied much more to the southern countries than it does apply to the east. And I think you make a very good point that with respect to Hungary and Poland, France and Germany are not coming from opposite ends of the spectrum. Mm. Although the Germans have been accommodating with Orban and have kept him and his likes inside the European People's Party, still the fundamental approach is the same. And that's why I continue to believe that Eastern enlargement, particularly Hungary and Poland, presents a new kind of problem that Southern enlargement never posed. Because the Spaniards, the Greeks, the Portuguese, they were awkward. They were often bad pupils in an economic class, but they were true Europeans. They believed in the process of European integration. Hungary is not the same. Although, again, these countries are very strange because on the one hand, Judging from Eurobarometer polls, there is a very wide support for Europe for membership of the European Union in all those countries. Yet they vote nationalists to represent them because presumably they want to have it their way. Their way creates a problem inside the European Union. European integration has a problem with the latest enlargement and will take a long time to digest the, the enlargement to the East. One final thing on the EU. This is going to be a very, this is going to sound like a really British question, and I apologise for that in advance. Given uh, Joseph Burrell's recent trip to Russia and uh, Ursula von der Leyen's experience over the vaccine, do you think this speaks to the selection problems the EU has when picking people for its top jobs? I think the visit was probably a mistake. And when there, he was not strong enough Mm. to defend the European position vis-a-vis Mr. Lavrov. But if I were to look for weaklings in European commissions, I would give you a long list of names before (laughs) I would end up with this one. If I may take this a bit further, the Germans, with very few exceptions, have never excelled themselves in sending their best to Brussels. I'm not talking about Ursula von der Leyen, but if you go through the list of German commissioners in Brussels, it leaves much to be desired. I mean, to, to go back to the good 
Paul again. I think he was on record as saying, send the most stupid. Not saying that he did, but I'm just saying that the Germans aren't the only ones who thought that actually real jobs were at home. And finally, and you know, this is, I always like to talk about this because it's what we at the UK and in Changing Europe do. You are one of those academics that has both been a leading academic who's published loads and very active both in national politics and as a special advisor to the president of the European Commission. And just reflecting back on your experience, firstly, do you think it's important that academics do both of those things? That's to say the academic work and reaching out. And secondly, what are the problems and frustrations you've experienced in trying to do both things? I'm not here to offer advice to my fellow academics. Some academics prefer the ivory tower of the university, and there's nothing wrong with it. We need those sort of academics, and there are others who try to understand the real world, who want to have direct access to the real world, and perhaps also influence. Britain is different from many other European countries because it has less respect for intellectuals. There are very few intellectuals in British politics, unlike France, unlike Italy, unlike my own country. It's a different model, different approach to the world. But I, for one, have always been interested in having a close, direct contact with those who exercise power in order to understand better what is going on and perhaps also in order to influence because I've always considered myself as what the French would call an an engagé intellectual. Mm -hmm. Somebody who wants not only to understand the world, but hopefully try to influence a bit the world. And that's why I acted also as advisor to the former president of the commission and also the former president of the council. I learned a lot. Sometimes, perhaps, I may have influenced a bit decisions, and I'm glad I did. But other people may not like that sort of life. You know, it's very much an individual decision. But it matters nonetheless, doesn't it, that policymakers have access to what social scientists are saying and that we make an effort to at least tell them what the research says, surely. Absolutely. But, you know, John Maynard Keynes said famously that all politicians are the slaves of defunct economists. And to a large extent, this is true. Ideas, you know, think about it. Were Reagan and Thatcher the slaves of Hayek and Friedman? Or did they use liberal economists to justify their own political beliefs? It is not an easy question to answer, but there's a continuous interaction between power and the world of ideas. And that's, that's life. That strikes me as a very, very good note on which to end. Lucas, this has been, as I anticipated, utterly fascinating. Thank you so, so much for giving us your time. Thank you so much for reminding me.